when I was uh, in high school, I guess it was either my, probably like my sophomore or junior year, I'll bet I was about 16, I read this book, um, this really, really uh, great book, but it was like gigantic, it was about 600 pages. And what's kind of incredible about it is, um, like it wasn't even a school book. Like I didn't have to read this book, which was kind of like a miracle for me because I just, I don't know, when I was in high school, I was like, I wasn't into reading, which was foolish, but it was the fact. And uh, so, you know, I only read what I had to read. Um, and even then, sometimes I didn't. Books, books I was assigned to in school. But anyway, one summer, uh, my father gave me this book and he suggested I start re- give it a read. And I, I started to. And I kind of couldn't put it down. It was about this uh, priest who uh, ultimately becomes a cardinal. So he kind of goes all the way up in the, in the chain of command uh, in the church. And uh, it's an interesting book. It's a kind of, it's fiction, but it's also kind of historical. It's sort of like got historical people, you know, kind of appear in the book. But the main character is this fictional guy, and I loved him. Um, this is this priest, his name was uh, Stephen, Stephen Fermoyle, and he was from Boston. His uh, parents, this was like, it took place like in the, uh, the first half of the 19th century, it's like, like 1910, 1915. His parents were very poor immigrants from Ireland. Uh, he goes in the seminary, he becomes a priest. He's a real talented guy. Like I said, eventually, you know, the name of the book is The Cardinal. He becomes a cardinal, and he's just totally heroic character. However, he's not perfect. Like, he's, he's totally not, like, he's not like a superhero. He's, he's got flaws, which, who doesn't, right? Like, that's, I think, part of what made it credible. Like, I didn't want to just, I don't think I would have sat through a book of just sort of like a fake book of this perfect person that doesn't exist. This guy was not perfect, but he was, but he was pretty great. Um, and there's a scene, well, the interesting about it is, like, I read the book like 40 years ago. Um, and I can't even say that I remember too much about it. Um, it was that long ago, but I remember loving it. But there's one scene in this huge book that I, that I, I never forgot. In fact, I, I looked it up the other day. I, uh, I got a new copy of the book and I kind of searched through this scene and I, and I tracked it down. This priest, uh, he's, not even a, he's, not a, he's not even a bishop yet at this point in the story. And he's uh, on a train in the south, like the deep south, like redneck, racist south, like absolutely pre-civil rights south. 1930 maybe, and the train breaks down. And because of that, he's gotta make his way to this, the nearest hotel, because the train's not gonna be fixed that day or night. So he walks a bunch of, you know, like eight or nine miles, gets to this like one horse town, and this is like gross hotel. It's the only place he can stay and he's, He's looking like a priest. He's wearing his Roman collar and he's getting this look from like these rednecks in this little town, like they're checking him out. Totally unwelcome, 
look and attitude. Eventually that night, he's sleeping in this hotel and the, the Klan, the KKK, breaks into his room, drags him out, blindfolds him, and brings him out into the, to the woods, to this field where the lynchings would happen, where the Klan would murder people. He gets out of the car, they take the mask off, there are these crosses that are on fire, burning crosses, all these guys in these uh, white sheets, pretty terrifying. And they're taunting him and they're mocking him because he's Catholic, he's not, he's not black. I mean, that was the worst in that time, in that place, but a second, maybe a close second, was to be Catholic. You know, the Klan hated Catholics almost as much as they hated black people. And they know he's a Catholic priest. At any rate, they drag him over to by one of these crosses that are on fire, and there's a one of these guys in the robes has a, a crucifix in his hand. And he points it at the priest and he goes, You, come here a minute. So they kind of push the priest over. And the priest and the, and the clansman says, uh, this is your symbol, right? And the priest kind of says, yeah, it is. And the clansman, clansman goes, uh, spit on it. Spit on it or you're, you're not gonna see tomorrow. So there's this long pause. Um, and you're not sure what he's gonna do. And then the priest reaches out his hand and he takes the crucifix. And you're thinking he's gonna kind of fold. He's gonna, he's gonna spit on it. But he doesn't. He takes it from this creep and he lifts it up like this. And he just holds it over his head. Like this total act of defiance. And these clansmen, they can't believe this guy has done this. So one of them has a whip, and he starts cracking this whip, and he starts whipping the priest. And he's taking a beating, but he won't lower the, the crucifix, and there's no way he's gonna spit on this thing. And these ignorant slobs in their hoods, they don't know what to do. Like, they're realizing this guy's not gonna be stopped. So slowly, they start to kinda walk away. They kind of give up. They don't know what to do. They're almost unnerved by this guy's courage. And he's bloody like mad at this point. In the book it said uh, he held the crucifix up until the, last, the lights of the last car pulled away. And then he lowers the crucifix and he's sitting there in the dark in the middle of nowhere. Um, and I remember that. Like, I, 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 remember, I remember it, and then I, when I reread it 40 years later, like two days ago, I was like, man, I, I pretty much had it right. Like, what I remember is what it was. And I remember as a kid, just sort of being so inspired by that, thinking like, man, how cool this guy is, how convicted and principled this priest is. And I guess on some level, I mean, I was thinking at that point about being a priest. I wasn't telling anybody. I wasn't talking about it. But there's no way I was reading a 600-page book on a priest if, uh, just, for the, just for the heck of it. Like, and I look back on it now, and I'm like, yeah, like, I mean, God was, 
kind of working through my heart and my head and my gut. You know, you hear those stories, and that's fiction. But there's lots of stories like that that are far from fiction. They're total fact. These stories where people are just kind of put to the test, like the ultimate test. And I think, I know what I always do, and I'll bet you do too. Like you kind of, you put yourself in their shoes, in their place, and you think, man, could, could I, would I? Like what would I do in this moment? Would I allow myself to be put to the test? Or would I spit on the crucifix? Or whatever it is I'm being sort of pressured to do or not do. It's like where does that conviction come from? I think I know. I think it comes from God. Did you see the video? I'm sure most of you did. I guess three, four days ago now, the, the president of uh, Ukraine, Zelensky, the video, he's standing out in front of, I think, like the Capitol building. It's in the, kind of in the dark. It's at night. Very somber, very serious. And he's talking into this camera, and there's a, you know, behind them are these faces of kind of like his, his cabinet, his people. And he says to the people of, of his country, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here tonight, and I'm gonna be here tomorrow. I would never leave you. I'm with you, and I'll die for you if I have to. Like, how does that not move you? Like, that's not a chapter in a book. That was four days ago. Like, how does that happen? This guy, Zelensky, do you know his story? Like, six years ago, he was a stand-up comedian, literally. Like, he was on TV. He was kind of like this, just this TV personality, telling jokes. And a couple of years later, he's standing up before the world, before this evil presence, and he's saying, I'm not... I'm not leaving. I'm not giving up. I'm not going to spit on the crucifix. Do what you're going to do, but I'm not running. So where does that come? I said I think it comes from God. You know what I mean by that? I think it comes from this simple fact. Really, Paul talks about it in this reading, the second reading, where pretty much he's like taunting death because he says, hey, Death, the notion of dying, it's like it doesn't really mean anything anymore after Easter. Because of Easter and the fact that Jesus beats death, Jesus comes back from the dead, that says to us it's sort of like death has been declawed or like defanged. This thing which used to just control us and terrorize us, the prospect of dying, it's like, yeah, I mean, hey, none of us wants to die, and we all resist it on some level instinctively. But the knowledge that this won't be it, this isn't the beginning and the end here and now, I think that's what enables the likes of this president to say what he said. You know, I was reading a, 
in an article about it. I guess he was right around that day, the day before maybe. He was on this conference call with these European leaders, different countries, and they're talking about the situation. And he was, as they were wrapping up, he said to them, I probably won't see you again. And they said it was like this horrible pause. Nobody, nobody knew what to say because they couldn't believe this guy was like, I think I'm, I'll, I'm probably going to be dead in the next couple of days. Paul says this, basically, hey, hey, death, hey, death, where's your victory? Hey, death, where's your sting? You don't have any sting anymore. Because death was beaten. And I think when we, like, completely, if we ever can, embrace that fact of our faith, then I think it, 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 it enables us to then become absolute heroes because it's like give me, you, give me the worst thing you got the worst thing you got isn't going to do me in and I think it's why those clansmen in the book they just sort of gave up they thought hey we got the ultimate weapon here we're going to kill this guy if he doesn't do what we want him to do and this guy's like go for it I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do I'm not going to surrender you know, uh, Martin Luther King, 19, well, it was April of 1968, right before he was uh, assassinated. He was down in uh, Memphis. There was a strike in Memphis. Uh, these construction workers, black construction workers, went on strike because they were, uh, they're, they're, well, there were two categories. You had the white construction workers and the black ones. Hard to believe. This is only 50-something years ago. And the conditions for the black guys was awful. It was dangerous. So as a result, a week or two prior, uh, two of these construction workers were killed because of like faulty equipment. So they went on strike. They were like, enough. So Martin Luther King went down to kind of support them. And he spoke to a crowd of about 2,000. Talked about the strike. And then he said this. This is what he said at the end. He said, we've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter to me now because I've, I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I'd like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people we'll get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And the place went crazy. And the next morning he was murdered. Like those words are like scary, prophetic. Because he knew it was coming. Death threats had been made upon him already. He'd already been assaulted multiple times. Like he knew it was coming. But he didn't run from it. Like he's not saying things like that if he believes that this is it. If he believed that this was it, he'd probably be like, I'm sorry, but I'm, 
I'm going to spit on the crucifix. And I'm running from Ukraine. I'm running for my life. Because this is the only one I got. But he knew that wasn't true. He believed Paul's words. And so should we. Hey, and you know what? None of us are dealing with the Klan and corrupt communist regimes, thankfully. But it doesn't mean we have, doesn't mean we don't deal with stuff. We don't deal with occasions and opportunities which kind of challenge us and scare us sometimes into compromising. We're just not up for the fight. We avoid the fight. And maybe we shouldn't. Maybe that's what Paul was trying to say to us. And maybe that's why we're, we're almost kind of speechless when we hear that Ukrainian president say what he said. I mean, don't you want to have that kind of conviction? I mean, I don't want to be in his shoes, but don't you want to be principled the way that guy is, or the way that priest and that story was? I saw this video uh, not too long ago. This kid was a high school kid, and he's got this, like, lunatic, woke teacher. She's ranting about how terrible the United States is and all the horrible stuff we've ever done. And she starts mocking uh, flag wavers, patriotic people, calling them just sort of like simple-minded, really gross, really obnoxious on the part of this teacher. And it's like some kid is filming the whole thing, filming her rant. And then you see kind of in the distance this kid, oh no, this, uh, a kid speaks out and a kid says, you know, my, my great-grandfather's brother died in the South Pacific defending that flag and you're mocking it. You're mocking my, my great-grandfather's brother. And she mocked that. She said something like, well, look what it got him. So this kid closes his book, stands up, and starts to walk out of the classroom, and the teacher gets all kind of panicked and flustered. She starts yelling at him to sit down, and he looked at her, and he just walked out of the room, and two more kids got up and followed him. That's what conviction gets you. I think that's what conviction leads us to. Yeah, but you know what? He could have he gotten expelled. Maybe now he'll, maybe the teacher will, you know, grade against him. Yeah, and maybe sometimes we just have to take that hit because there's more important things than grades. As important as they are, there's, there's more, like being principled and staying in the fights that are worth staying in. I mean, can you think of maybe some, something that you used to kind of defend and used to be willing to r fight for, and now you kind of don't so much anymore? We're kind of afraid. We're afraid of being canceled. We're afraid of being fired. I'm afraid of being alone. So I've sort of just folded. Well, that's not what, that's not why he died and rose from the dead. So, what's the fight? Maybe it's a fight you kind of almost have to revisit. I look at something and I'm like, yeah, I've kind of gotten, I've gotten scared. Hey, there's nothing wrong with being scared. You know, that, that president looked pretty scared in that video. And in the book, the priest was scared to death. But it didn't stop either of them. 
Nothing wrong with being afraid. It's like what we do with the fear. And in all honesty, if, if, if we've all in some aspects sort of done some running from the fear, run back and take a stand. Stay and fight. Fight. 